Bible. You know the background of the story. God has given the Ten Commandments. And remember, the Ten Commandments begin not with the first commandment, but always with the Gospel. I am Yahweh your God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I have set you free. I have liberated you. Here's how liberated people live. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So there you go. That's the Ten Commandments. And now that God has given it, He welcomes Moses to come up on the mountain to receive those Ten Commandments handwritten by God in a stone. And that's what we're beginning to read here, starting in verse 12. Exodus 24, verse 12. The Lord, or Yahweh, said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. And so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to him. Let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day, He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so the Lord on the mountain giving the Ten Commandments is surrounded by glory. So the glory of the Lord tells you that the Lord of glory is giving that, those Ten Commandments. Let's turn now to James then. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13. It's page 1011. We're just, for those of you visiting, we're working on a series through James, Hand and Heart. And this is where we are in our series, James chapter 2, 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit at my feet, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, 
For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What I've read to you from Exodus and from James is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, You who are not wowed or wooed by the prosperous, nor bamboozled or bemused by the penurious, may Your words to us this day give us far better perspective and lead us to far better practices. Amen. You may be seated. And so the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide. There's three points. There's some questions at the end there. Lots of space for you to write notes. Ron Hall and Denver Moore wrote a book together. Denver is now dead, and I saw just recently a flyer that Ron Hall is going to be in town somewhere. I don't remember where, but Ron Hall and Denver Moore wrote a book together titled A Same Kind of Different as Me. It's a touching tale of Denver Moore's early life as an African-American descendant of slaves, a son of sharecroppers in the deep, deep South with all of the suffocating financial and racial prejudice. And then after he gets out of that, he becomes this homeless drifter. And so he chronicles how he became this drifter and the tricks that he played, especially on usually white folks who were eager to give money or do something, the tricks that he would play. But then also how he was befriended by Ron Hall. And even though Ron Hall, who's a wealthy white guy, even though Ron Hall approaches more from his place of power and affluence, it becomes a deeply touching tale, and it's something of a picture of what James 2 is after in our passage. And so in our passage, James is continuing his thread that he ended chapter 1 with in verse 26 and 27. His He's continuing his thread of contrasting phony religion and faithful religion. And so here he will describe, here's your three points, he will describe our privilege, and he will challenge partiality, and lastly, he will put forth gospel-grounded propriety. And so there's the three points. Let's begin then with privilege, and it's primarily verse 1, though we will go down to verse 7 in just a moment. So most of these 13 verses that I read to you in verse chapter 2, James 2, 1 through 13, most of these 13 verses are pretty clear. In fact, it's all basically an illustration, and the illustration that James uses runs this whole section. And so because it's pretty clear, we can all too easily skim right past the foundation and substantiation that is stated of this letter that is stated in verse 1. James presents to us who Jesus is, and he implies what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for his people. He's showing us that we have a thoroughly Christian letter. Look at verse 1. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Lord of glory. Now I want you to notice what he's saying there. He's laying out for us who this Jesus is, and that then shapes everything else in this letter. So we hold the faith, we hold the rule of faith, we hold the body of the faith about who Jesus is, and James is going to pack it all here in these terms. So James uses three terms, Lord, 
That wasn't Jesus' first name. Lord, it's a title. Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. That's also a title. Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last title he's going to use is the Lord of glory. They're all descriptive. And he is packing in a wall up here. So let's break this down. Let's begin right in the middle. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Hamashiach. That's the anointed one. That's the one that all the Old Testament kept longing for was the coming of Hamashiach, the Christ, the Messiah. And so here's the real person, Jesus, who walked the dusty trails, teaching and living what he taught, showing how Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets all testified of him. And he became, remember, the crucified Messiah. Everybody was scandal because Messiah, they thought, was not supposed to be crucified. And here he was. He's the Christ. That's a kingly title. Well, let's go to the beginning of this. The Lord. The Lord is also a kingly title. And it's given to Jesus for something specific. This is the one, this Jesus, who was crucified. The crucified Christ is the one who beat death, who rose from the dead, the same body, blood, bones, toenails and hair that was slaughtered on the cross. He beat death and rose again from the dead and that declares Him as Lord. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the third title he's given is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of glory. James is reaching backward with that title, clear back to the Old Testament, and he is looking forward. This is the one who is at Mount Sinai establishing the covenant through Moses, the Lord of glory, the Lord surrounded by the glory, giving the Ten Commandments. But he is also the one, as you heard in the call to worship from Hebrews, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and who he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But he is also the one who is returning to judge both the living and the dead. Again, as Paul says in Titus chapter 2. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When James says that at verse 1, we're holding to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's packing a wall up, and what he's telling you is this is a thoroughly Christian letter written by a Christian apostle who believes that Jesus died for the sins of his people, was the chosen Messiah, rose on the third day, and is King of kings and Lord of lords. James is a Christian letter. For anyone who doubted, I hope you don't doubt anymore. But also notice that, that James means, what, whatever he means, he means he may mean more than what I've just told you, but he means nothing less than I've just stated. And that should therefore impact how you hear the letter of James, and that should impact the way you process the letter of James. Oh, this is the word of Jesus through James. 
Further, notice that James, when you get down to verse 7, is actually referring to our baptism when he talks about the name we all bear as Christians, the honorable name by which you were called. When you are baptized, you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are therefore now known as the Christ ones, or Christians, right? You bear the name of Jesus on you from your baptism on. It is spoken over you. And so whatever one says about you, they're actually saying about Jesus. Now that's pretty huge. You let that sit there for a while and think about that. What have you said about Christians? That's what you're saying about Jesus. And so that's his point. The name that you bear. The honorable name by which you bear. The name of the one that we hold to. The name of the one that we confess that we hold to. The one by whom we are known. The one with whom we are identified. We are named with his name. My friends, that's our privilege. All of that I just laid out for you in verse 1 and verse 7, that's our privilege. And therefore, this is our privilege. How can we dare exhibit partiality? And that's really the main point of this whole passage dealing with partiality. He mentions it twice, and he mentions another word, a synonym, distinction. So he mentions it three times in this passage. It's the big point. Brothers, sisters, friends, once we realize that the gospel is the foundation and substantiation of this letter, we are confronted with this thought. What would have been the result toward us if Jesus had shown favoritism? What would have been the end result for us if Jesus had shown bigotry, partiality? I mean, that's the idea behind verse 1. How could we, we who have received such great privilege despite our status, you heard it in the assurance of pardon, we are the enemies of God to the very depths of our toes. And being the very enemies of God, He still came to us and rescued us. Oh, marvelous grace! As we quoted last week from Colossians as part of our, 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 our confession of faith, We were hostile to God, and it's in that hostility God doesn't say, good riddance. He comes to us in that hostility, and He rescues us. I mean, think about it. How could we then, who have received such great privilege despite our status, go about flexing our prejudiced, bigoted muscles, flaunting our biased preferences. And so then James tightens the screws down, or the bolts, if you like socket wrenches. He's tightening it down a bit tighter with his illustration of the two people. The two people who walk into their synagogue. That's the Greek word used there in verse 2 that says assembly. This tells you, reminds you that James is probably the first letter of the New Testament ever written when almost all Christians were Jewish, and therefore their worship assemblies were synagogues or synagogues. And so they walk into your synagogue. Now the scene that he lays out here of the two people walking into the synagogue is a little bit unusual to us. We would never think of somebody saying, oh, come sit over here in the special place. You, you go sit at my feet, right? We don't ever do that, right? 
So that's a little unusual to us, but we easily get the point that James is getting across. It's just like when two families come into a church service and one is dressed to the nines. Does that language still communicate to you? Dressed to the nines? Right, one's dressed to the nines and the other one comes in all spiky purple hair, piercings all around their faces and holes in their jeans. Those who look like money usually receive the welcoming handshake and the fawning attention of others while those who are dressed like punk rockers, I just dated myself, nobody's a punk rocker anymore, but okay, but those dressed like punk rockers merely get a handshake at best. And I've actually seen that in some churches completely inverted because the ones that are dressed up are the ones who are the outsiders, not like us, and those on the inside are the spiky hair. I've seen it happen both ways. And you could play this out in a hundred different scenarios. Yet notice that James is really concerned with one of the most basic and fundamental divisions in human society, poverty and prosperity. He is concerned about those in a specific form. And it's here where James tightens down the bolts even more snugly and he moves down deep into the sacred society. He moves down into the assembly of God's people. Here's what I mean. You need to stay with me here so you can see this. The poor in James's illustration are actually the believing poor. Just look down at verse 5, the language used of the poor in verse 5, when he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen, there's the election language, chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, there's regeneration language, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. He's talking about believers who happen to be impoverished, the believing poor. That means he's not talking about the poor in general when he says in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. He's talking about the poor brother or the poor sister, not the poor in general. Whereas on the other side, the prosperous mentioned here are the prosperous in the neighborhood at the, the, uh, the country club out in the town who happen to be visiting your synagogue. Notice verse 6 and 7, what they do, the, the wealth, these prosperous are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? The wealthy he's referring to here in his illustration are actually unbelievers from outside who are powerful and prosperous. So James is referring, as I've already said, the the powerful in the country out there coming in and notice then how he pulls this out and what it looks like. Here are Christians turning their back on fellow Christians to welcome in, to be wowed by these wealthy people who are actually their persecutors. And you hear this illustration and you go, well, that's stupid. And that's James's point. Yeah, it is stupid. Why are you doing it? That's his point. And so, my friends, James is, what James is doing here is he is rectifying the mistaken perception that some believers seem to have had, and I would say some believers still have even today, 
that the powerful are somehow the especially preferred by God. That the powerful, the prosperous, are somehow especially preferred by God. I remember having a conversation with a woman one time who was watching a TV preacher, and I had to say to her, I said, you know, just because he's got lots of people and he's got gold rings on his finger and he's got a, drives a $500,000 Bentley doesn't mean he's chosen by God, that he's special in God's eyes. She goes, it doesn't? I mean, it's all over. It feeds most, of, uh, much, not most, much of North American Christianity. And then we export it to places like Kenya and Nigeria and our missions. James is trying to rectify that here in his story and what he's getting after. The reality is, is that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality for the poor or the prosperous in their poverty or prosperity. And that's the way it is. And that's good news. So let me come at this a different way. Let me come at this from our Old Testament readings. The passage we read before our confession of sin in Exodus 23. When the Lord is giving directions on judicial procedures, remember he said, you shall not spread a false report, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, that's his concern. And then he says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You'll not pervert justice for the poor. And then a little bit later, he goes on to say this. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. Do not play favorites with the poor. Do not twist justice against the poor and do not twist justice for the poor. And so then the Lord takes it a little bit further when you get to Leviticus 19.15. If you're writing the notes down, Leviticus 19.15, the Lord brings it out clearly. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You'll not pervert justice for the poor or for the prosperous, and you will not pervert justice against the poor or against the prosperous. So when James is talking about no partiality, God is the picture of that no partiality. He doesn't play favorites. Now that goes against most of our folk religion in our day. When we think, obviously, God must not like her because she has to be on welfare. God must really like him because he's wealthier than all get out. But we think God has perverted justice just because of their position and condition. Scripture is clear from one end to the other. He doesn't. And so the point is, is that we're being called in James 2 to come and stand with God and learn to see others as God sees them and to treat all fairly. To treat all fairly. Fairly. Which means that we will not allow ourselves to become wowed by the wealthy or put off by the penurious. Penurious is fancy for poor, but you get it, right? We're not wowed by the wealthy or put off by the penurious. And yet, when needed, 
chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. When needed, we will readily step in for the voiceless and for those who are vulnerable to oppression. To put it in a different way, as, jo- as Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 6, we will seek to do good to everyone, but especially to the household of faith. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone, but especially the household of faith, Paul says. You know, kind of an example of this, in my head at least, is found over in Acts 10 and 11. You remember the story how Peter is called upon to go preach the gospel to Gentiles. People that God definitely cannot love because they're the wrong ethnic group. You know what I'm saying? And so he gets a vision, the sheep that's brought down with all the unclean animals, and he's told repeatedly, rise and eat. And he says, I've never eaten anything unclean in my life, and... Finally, Peter gets it. God is telling me something specific. And then he gets the call to go preach to Cornelius, the Gentile centurion. And after he preaches to the centurion, he has to defend himself in the next chapter, chapter 11, against the very righteous Pharisees who wouldn't dare hang out with that kind. And he uses the exact same Greek words. Those of you know, the New Testament is written in Greek. He uses the exact two Greek words that are used here in James 2. Partial distinction. Here's how it goes. So in chapter 10, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. That's the word used here in James 2, 1 and 9. And then as he's defending himself against the very righteous Pharisees, he says, the Spirit told me to go with them making no distinction. That's verse 4 here in James 2. What's the point? I'm just simply hammering home what the Bible says, that we're not to look down on the lowly and we're not to be wowed by the wealthy. We're not to be people who treat, who act with partiality. Instead, we're to see the people, see people the way God sees humankind. And we're especially to see His treasured possession people. His tre- I'm pointing at y'all. Y'all look at His treasured possession people the way He sees them. That's how we're to be. Which leads us then to propriety. This is our last point. Verse 8, verses 10 through 13. Now, James has all those passages I read to you from Exodus and Leviticus in mind about not being prejudiced for the poor or prosperous and not being prejudiced against the poor or the prosperous. And so notice what he calls the law in verse 8. He calls it the law of the king. He calls it the royal law. Now, those of you who have just read verse 1, you know whose law this is. The royal law, the law of the king. Well, what king? King Jesus. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah. It's his law. He gave it. Oh. And so then, notice James calls it again in verse 12, what he said in chapter 1, verse 25. He calls it the law of liberty. Well, that makes sense when you remember that that's what the law is. I'm the Lord who set you free. Here's how free people live. I'm the Lord who liberated you. Here's how liberated people live. Oh, it's the law of liberty. Got it. 
This is how free people thrive in their freedom. So the king's way, the king's way is not about us gaining advantage and crushing others, but it's about us living in loving liberty in our relationship with each other. And so when you get to verse 10 and 11, notice that James tells us if we play fast and loose with the law, if we play fast and loose with the law, we're violators of the law. Now this is important to James. It's going to come up when we get to chapter 4. Again, specifically, he talks about being judgmentalists. But here's what he means. As I've said before, Pharisees and judge, those who are judgmental do this. They hold everybody else to strict accounts while they give themselves broad latitude. They hold everybody else to strict accounts while they give themselves broad latitude. And they love to say, the Bible applies to you here, you better obey. But here's the excuse for why I can't obey it, or why I don't have to obey it. Do you hear the play? Do you hear the game? It's a violator's game. It's a law-breaking game. And so James says in verse 10 and 11, don't play fast and loose with the law. Right? It applies without partiality. It applies without partiality. Are you picking up what I'm putting down here? The law applies without partiality. So you cannot play fast and loose with the law. If you do... You're a violator of the law. You're a breaker of the law. But all of us then need to approach each other then with propriety, speaking and acting as those who are, verse 12, to be judged under the law of liberty. Now think about that statement for a moment. Judged under the law of liberty? What does that mean? Judged by God's gift of liberation and his sustaining liberality. How have we acted in regard to our God-given liberation and God's way of liberty? Have we flourished in his liberty and made sure to extend that health-enhancing liberty to others? Or are we doing like the rest of our society does and playing fast and loose with the law and holding everybody else to strict accounts and giving myself broad latitude? That's not good. That's not liberty. That's actually enslavement. Have we flourished in his liberty and made sure to extend that health-enhancing liberty to others? If we have been handed liberty and yet we refuse to promote it for others, poor or prosperous, then have we shown that we have never really known that liberty to begin with? Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Have we shown that we are still in bondage to our societies, our social orders skewed? and spoiled and specious notions of success and significance? Have we squandered the goodness of God? Have we squandered the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And yet, dear friends, that last sentence, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's really our only hope in the end. And so learning to treat one another fairly, learning to act toward one another without partiality, is to deal with others rightly, is to deal with others mercifully, is to exhibit 
what Jesus did for us that's laid out, that's hinted at and mapped out in verse 1. If we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who showed no partiality when saving us, then we will respond by exhibiting gospel-grounded propriety to one another. And so, my friends, it seems to me that this word of the Lord, James 2, 1 through 13, that this word of God is very, very clear, and its applications are quite obvious, especially regarding with how we treat one another in our fellowship, and regarding the importance of not acting out or seeing through the lenses of our social bigotries. So I'm not going to deal with a lot of the applications that are just right there on the surface, but here are a couple of concluding thoughts. The story of Ron Hall and Denver Moore, it's a bumpy, awkward story. Ron Hall does everything wrong most of the time, and so does Denver. It's just one of those human stories, right? It's all filled with messing up and messing things up as they work out the principles of James 2. Denver becomes a believer and Ron's a believer and learning what it means to live without partiality. And so my friends, if you've ever read it, you know what I'm referring to, but I would encourage you to read it again. If you've never read it, I hope you will go read it. The same kind of different as me. But further... How might recalling verses 8 through 12 change the way we relate to others? Let's get more specific. How might verses 8 through 12 change the way we relate to our own spouses in the normal difficulties of marriage, and especially in those high-conflict situations in our marriage? Are we speaking judgmentally, holding the other spouse to strict accounts while we allow ourselves broad latitude, applying Scripture to them, but finding all the excuses why it doesn't apply to me? That's not good. That, has that helped you, anybody? That doesn't help anybody. Instead, in, instead, instead, speaking and acting as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Remembering that judgment without mercy is going to be to those who have shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So lastly, if you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, if you hold the faith of the one who has come to us despite our adversarial stance, if you come to the one who has saved us, who are by nature the children of wrath, if you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, you will respond by exhibiting gospel-grounded propriety to one another. And you'll be able to sing the hymn that we're going to sing at the end of the service. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear. And often for each other flows 
the sympathizing tear. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we confess to you that being bigoted, exhibiting our bigotries, being partial, showing favoritism, or whatever you want to call it, Lord, is just a hair's breadth away from what we do. It's in our hearts. It's in our drinking water. It flows through the air. It's all around us. Lord, thank you so much that you did not show favoritism. You came to us despite our status and you made us your own, your, your treasured possession people. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would exhibit, that we would extend this grace-filled, gracious, liberty-enhanced mercy to one another and to others. Where our, con- where our relationships are in turmoil, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see where we are holding the others to strict accounts but giving ourselves broad latitude. And that we would turn around and give undeserved grace to others. Lord, thank you that we are being judged under the law of liberty. And what liberty? For you're the one who set us free and you said, now here's how free people live. And so may mercy show up in our lives day after day to the end. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.